Hey, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to If Women Ran the Internet, where every episode we bring on a new woman or non-binary individual who's leading change in the relationship between people and technology and hear their fascinating insights through the lens of entrepreneurship, public policy, ethics, and more. Today, we're here with Camille Carlton, Senior Policy Manager at the Center for Humane Technology. Ms. Carlton, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself and any roles you identify with, as well as a little bit more about the Center for Humane Technology for our listeners? Yeah, thank you so much, Anani. I'm so pleased to be here. Um, my name's Camille, everyone. Uh, I'm Cuban-American, uh, grew up in a big Cuban household, so that's a big part of my identity. Um, I was born in uh, Los Angeles, so LA native, but I'm a chosen East Coaster. I've been living in the East Coast for um, almost a decade now. Um, And I work for the Center for Humane Technology. The Center for Humane Technology is a small nonprofit and we're working to align technology with humanity's best interests. We do this through uh, kind of public media projects like our podcast or the film, The Social Dilemma, We also work to train technologists on um, actually building technology in a more humane way. And we also work with policymakers. Awesome, Um, that sounds amazing. And um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you're specifically working on at CHT and how that aligns with CHT's goals in the area of policy right now? Yeah, absolutely. I'm the senior policy manager at CHT and In general, we look at policies that address big tech's business model and helps shift incentives so that these companies are designing technology with our best interests from the very beginning. This can look like a lot of different things in terms of my day-to-day. Everything from educating policymakers to convening stakeholders to providing policy inputs, et cetera. That makes sense. So what was your journey like getting into technology policy and what got you interested in this? Yeah, well, I went for my undergrad degree in international affairs, but when I graduated, I was faced with, um, I think, a dilemma that many of us face in the U.S. where the types of jobs I wanted to do were not really aligned with the salary I needed in order to pay off my student loans. So for a while, I was working at different tech startups, doing marketing and design for them, fintech and health tech. Um, And right around, you know, leading up to the 2016 election and after the 2016 election, I really noticed that something started to change within my own family. We had always been a family that would have lively political debates over dinner. Holidays were loud and long, but loving. Um, And as we started leading up to the holidays after the 2016 election, I remember my mom saying, no politics this year. We're not going to talk about it. Like, please keep your feelings to yourself. And she said that she, the last time she felt like politics in this country were so deeply hurtful and vindictive that it actually reminded her of being in Cuba. And at the time, I didn't really have the words or kind of structural understanding to know what was happening. But I just felt, you know, something is different this time around. And and I see it on social media and I see it in the way that I'm interacting with my family and in the way that my family members are interacting with each other, but I couldn't quite pinpoint it. Then I learned about Cambridge Analytica and I started to have, I guess, a bigger awareness as to the impact of social media on our societies. 
So I decided to kind of pivot careers. I went and I got a master, a master's. And I decided for me that policy is one of the stickiest mechanisms for change. And so I wanted to kind of pursue shifting, you know, tech reform and the tech ecosystem through policy. That's that's really inspiring. And I, I'm sure, uh, at least personally, I was able to really resonate with what you were saying about with that noticeable shift, um, even within our own family conversations after um, the changing political climate in, in 2016 and, and how that tied into a lot of the technology we were seeing. Um, yeah. I guess, uh, what is the role you see public policy playing in creating uh, the future of humane technology? And how does that kind of interplay with the responsibilities that come from corporations and technologies, technologists? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely think that there is shared responsibility across the board, right? We don't want to abdicate individuals from the roles that they play. But I also think that when we're looking at big structural change, which is kind of necessary when you have um, things that are so embedded across our society, our economies, and you know our politics, that we have to look at the incentives. We all have incentives in our lives, and their incentives are driving the decisions that we make. So until we actually shift the incentives and push the costs of the externalities of these tech companies onto their own balance sheets, I don't think that we can expect them to operate, you know, in the public interest on their own accord. And that's where I think that the interplay of, you know, government public policy really comes in. It's, you know, how can public policy shift incentives in the way that we can design these tech products better? That makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think I, I personally see a lot of narrative around like volunteerism when it comes to these things. So I agree in how public policy mm -hmm. kind of shifts that to more uh, tangible outcomes. Um, I guess shifting uh, into technological jurisprudence more broadly, um, what do you think it represents about the changing relationship between technology, people, and government? And how is that importance increasing? Yeah, so I think that what we're seeing is kind of the general public starting to acknowledge that the way things have been done is not sufficient. And that the way that, you know, tech companies have operated with no oversight, no accountability, and kind of really little knowledge in terms of, you know, transparency for the public, uh, is having consequences. And so what, what's driving this is that we're starting to see these tech systems as really socio-technical. So there are systems that are complex and they involve interactions with you know, us and the environment and the actual technology. And all of this is having feedback loops and it's changing. You know, technology, we change technology, technology changes us. And so when you have such complex systems, you have to understand that in order to kind of shape them in the way that you want to shape them, there has to be different types of kind of intervention points. So this can be, again, individual people making choices, it can be the government making choices, it can be, you know, a shift in um, how the products are designed by the technologists themselves. But in general, what we're seeing is that we, because we don't have the incentives that are pushing these companies to design products in the way that reflects our best interests already, we need to kind of level up um, the role of government. We need to level up the role that um, kind of policy plays in the ecosystem in order to kind of course correct. 
Absolutely. Um, and I think uh, something that sort of is, is more of a, an, an exemplification of what you were talking about recently um, that was the, the sort of TikTok ban um, fears or I mean, maybe mm-hmm. maybe some of it was real. Some of it was like a lot of, I guess, like panic people um, were having. But I think we, we saw that uh, go down a few months ago. Um, could you weigh in on what that conversation about um, data and privacy and, um, you know, uh, geopolitical affairs and how that's kind of so intertwined with social media and technology today? Yeah, this the TikTok ban is such an interesting conversation. And I think it's it's really interesting because it brought, I would say, unexpected people to the policy table. Um, but I think that the ban in and of itself as a policy mechanism to me, it just highlights an easy way out, right? I I totally understand, respect, and agree with the data privacy concerns around TikTok. I think that that's 100% valid and we should be very worried. But I also have these concerns for the rest of the tech platforms we're interacting with daily. So to me, the, the solution isn't a bit about, you know, banning TikTok or banning one platform. It's about, you know, having comprehensive data privacy. It's about ensuring that these um, companies are operating and designed in ways that, you know, serve our best interests as um, society, as consumers, as users you know, regaining kind of ownership and control over our own experiences, our data, our thoughts, our data stewardship. And so to me, it it's kind of just the, the top level of a more robust conversation that needs to be had. And I, I hope that I hope that what this does, you know, the idea of this ban is actually opens up that conversation to be broader and opens us to think about, well, how do we want these companies to operate? And how do we want our data to be treated? And, and what do we imagine is, you know, a, a good relationship between these platforms that we use every day. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. I remember I actually, it's I, uh, the same stance you were saying is, um, I actually uh, was reading an editorial on with the exact same stance for my English class last year. So totally agree there and definitely a bigger conversation to be had. Um, I guess shifting over to um, something, uh, you know, democratic functioning, which is a big topic that CHT discusses and works to um, improve. For our listeners, could you elaborate on this issue and how we can possibly resolve it through tech policy? Yeah, this this is a big one. Um, and I think that our perspective on the democratic functioning really comes down to the engagement maximizing function of social media. So there's been lots of research, both by platforms themselves and by external researchers that point to how the engagement maximization of these platforms, which essentially is looking at how do we keep people online longer? And we're trying to keep people online longer because we make money based off advertising. And the more time people spend online, the more money that we get in advertising because they see more ads. So this whole kind of function, it's, you know, the advertising driven engagement maximizing business model uh, really feeds outrage, anger, conspiracy content, um, misinformation, disinformation. And so as long as we have this mechanism, and again, there's been lots and lots of research that points to this, you're kind of seeing a breakdown in societal norms. And again, social media is not the only driver of polarization. Um, Social media can contribute to polarization and the engagement maximizing function in particular of social media 
as we've seen, is contributing to anger, outrage, conspiracy content, etc. And this is making it more difficult for democracies to function, because the more polarized we are, the less we trust each other, the less we trust institutions, the less likely we are to actually engage in a productive way in, in democracy. And so the role of policy here is really interesting, and it goes back to like designing better platforms. So again, lots of platforms have done their own research. We've seen external research that points to a handful of solutions that can actually help address polarization. So for instance, we have, you know, instead of maximizing for engagement, can we maximize for more pro-social goals, such as meaningful conversations? Um, instead of letting, you know, certain, uh, certain accounts go viral with, you know, conspiracy theories or misinformation, can we actually limit the amount of reach that non-trustworthy accounts have, right? So we know when accounts, we can know when accounts are bots, we can know when they're kind of systematically pushing um, an agenda. So can we limit the amount of information or posts and content that those accounts have? Um, there's also lots of research around actually limiting political advertising leading up to elections and how impactful that is. Um, we've seen that on the platform. So we actually also see that offline in a handful of countries. So there are different, again, types of design fixes that policy can incentivize for these platforms that can help address um, the growing polarization, which again, so social media is not the only cause, but if you know tackling this can help us in the bigger picture of tackling um, and improving democratic functioning. So I think what you just went through um, really correlates well to the conversation we're having about social media and free speech today. Um, could you provide your insights on that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I love this question because I actually think that the conversation around free speech is a fallacy that benefits these tech platforms. So if all we do as a society is argue about whether or not speech is free, we're never going to get anywhere. But having this argument kind of re is removed from the fact that we don't have to talk about speech to fix a lot of the harms of these platforms. We can actually design them better and be completely content neutral, not focused at all on what the content is, but change the underlying mechanisms that contribute to how these platforms interact and how we interact with them. And so I would actually urge people to kind of take a step back and away from the conversation of, oh, this content is good, this content is bad, we need to protect free speech. Absolutely, we do need to protect free speech, but that's not even a conversation we have to have in order to improve these platforms. We can just design them better and not focus on content at all. I think that's that's a really interesting insight that I hope a lot of people will um, understand and uh, see eye to eye with. Um, I guess kind of shifting over to something, uh, I guess, a little bit away from the uh, social media related uh, topics we've been talking about. Could you weigh in on the directions that we have currently in terms of AI related tech policy, since um, we, we know that there's been a recent paradigm shift brought on by generative AI and how it's increasingly on seemingly every platform? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're seeing a lot of appetite um, in the US to address AI um, and to kind of figure out what some meaningful uh, guardrails look like. Um, so in the past couple of weeks, we saw the 
uh, Biden administration's voluntary standards come out with a handful of the largest foundation model providers. We also have seen um, proposed bills at the federal level, everything from Schumer's safe uh, framework to Ted Lieu's bill to even ADPA, which is comprehensive privacy and gets to kind of the core of the data that these AI companies are built upon. There's endless kind of federal bills. Um, and we're also seeing lots of movement at the state level as well. So we have some bills that have already been passed. I mean, Illinois has had their biometric privacy uh, bill for a handful of years now. I know New York City just passed an AI hiring law that requires notification. Um, and many other states are kind of stepping up to the plate. And so we're seeing, I think, just a breadth of different kind of policy solutions. And I think that the, the real question is going to be, you know, what's actually, what are the details within these bills? And do these details address some of the big concerns that we have? Um, do they ensure that we have comprehensive privacy? Do they ensure that, you know, the that these platforms are being designed safe from the beginning? Do they help balance asymmetries of power and information that we experience with these platforms every day? So I think that's where the core of, of our questions lie. That makes a lot of sense. Um, definitely, as you're saying, it seems that government is a little bit more proactive on the uh, AI side of policy compared to how they were with social media. Um, but I guess shifting a little bit to a slightly different topic. So um, as you know, my, my podcast also tries to examine um, the ways in which uh, feminism intersects with technology today. So could you maybe weigh in on how the lack of female representation at high level positions in tech companies and companies at large has sort of influenced the current situation we have with persuasive technology? Yeah, this is such an important topic. Um, and I think that the, the bottom line is that these technologies and the way that these companies operate, they reflect the people that are building them, they reflect the people in charge, and they reflect the data that their products are built on. And at the end of the day, if we want technology that reflects all of our values and upholds all of our best interests, we need it to be built and led by people that reflect each of us. And until we have that, we're going to continue to have kind of a disconnect and a skew in terms of the technology that we're seeing, the companies in power and our lived experiences. 100%. And um, I'm going to be going into my last question now. Um, so I guess shifting into um, sort of the, the final food for thought that I'm trying to provide listeners with. Um, I, I think that one of my main motivations was for starting this uh, podcast was to get um, more young people interested in responsible innovation and how we can foster a culture that supports that through whether that be through policy or, or a variety of other um measures. Um, so do you have any closing advice for young people or maybe young women on how we can get more involved and um, even maybe just learn more about what we just talked about today since I know we just barely scratched um, the surface, but how can we get involved and help contribute to a future with more humane technology? Yeah, I, I guess I want to start by saying first that I am so inspired by young people in this space every single day. Um, I think that seeing 
the energy and the drive that they have to build a better world with technology is really inspiring and sharing their unique perspectives on it because um, there's just a disconnect between the, the people in power, you know, making the laws, the people in power making the technology. And again, the lived experiences that we have and that young people might have um, with these products. So it's super important and I'm, you know, continue to be just humbled and excited by youth work every day. And I think if I had any advice, I would say that from my vantage point, it feels like we're at a transition period where it's almost kind of like a changing of the guards happening, where we're in that moment where we're having growing pains because you can see the potential and the work and the energy and the brilliance from the people who are going to be coming up as leaders, but they're just not, they're not there yet. So we're having these growing pains right now. And so um, while I see it shifting, I think it can you know, be frustrating that it's not there yet, but I hope that as long as you know, young people continue to share their voice, continue to um, be involved and to find you know, allies in the space and to come together uh, as groups and in large numbers to push for the change that they want to see, that this kind of you know, period of the changing of the guards will grow shorter and you know, in time you'll see that like the power will shift. And I'm really excited for that because I think from all of the young people that I've interacted with um, who care about this space, their ideas are phenomenal and um, I want to see them in more positions of power and kind of having agency over their own lived experiences. Awesome. Um, thank you for that wonderful insight. I hope our listeners resonate with that. And that just about closes off our interview. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And I really encourage any listeners to go ahead and check out the Center for Humane Technologies website or um, the documentary podcast, any of that to learn more about what we discussed today. Um, and I'm sure listeners gained a lot. since I know I sure did. Um, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you to listeners and signing off. This is your host, Ananya and listeners. See you in the next one.